Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard, and Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Nomad Strength Show. We've got a really awesome show today. I was joined by my buddy, Corey Hawk. Uh, you may know Corey on Instagram as Organic Archer. Uh, he's a professional bowyer, uh, former Marine, homesteader. He's super fit, and he's an, he's an awesome guy and just a cool dude to be around and talk to. And we connected down at Winter Strong. And uh, really just needed to talk to him some more and find out some more about what's making this guy tick because I'm seeing him everywhere on Instagram and his bows that he makes are just the, the most rad things ever. And we get into a little bit of that. But honestly, we, we spent a lot of this conversation not talking about bows and uh, getting into just some life stuff and talking about what he's doing at his home and homesteading and talking about uh, prepping scenarios. And it was just like we kind of went all over the map. It was a really cool conversation and uh, not necessarily one that I was anticipating going down with Corey. Uh, but we did get to talk some bow stuff at the beginning. So I know you guys will enjoy that. But this was really just a fun conversation and took us into some weird spots that I really enjoyed. So uh, be sure you go follow him and uh, check out all of the things that he's doing, making his bows. He's got classes and uh, seminars that he does in person where you can go out to his place and have a bow made by you with him. He'll teach you the whole process of how you make a, a traditional longbow or or a recurve or whatever it is that you want to make. And they're awesome and they're super high quality. And I just recommend you guys go check him out because he is super rad. So uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Corey Hawk. Okay, we are live with my man, Corey Hawk. Thanks for making the time, man. I'm glad we got to schedule this thing out and find some time to talk. Yeah, appreciate you having me on, Ross. We got to uh, hang out a bit at Winter Strong. Not, not a ton, but you know, I've, I've had a handful of guests on since Winter Strong that I met at Winter Strong. And uh, we all kind of think, you know, we all, we've all had the same experience in a way where it's like there's 
not a ton of people, but there's so much going on. Like you want to have like deep conversations and like hang out with people, but there's so many people you want to do that with. Like you just don't have, like we're only there for two days. So you just like don't have the time to do that with all the people, um, which I guess is kind of what makes that event really special in a way, which, you know, you get to have some really deep conversations, but I get to meet cool people and then ask them to come on the pod. So then we can do it here instead. So um, I was glad with that. Yeah. I think everybody leaves that event with the, kind of a, a small group of people that they didn't get to spend enough time with that they wish they would have. So totally definitely a lot going on. You and just do what you can and yeah, absolutely. Catch everybody else the next year. Yep, exactly. That's my plan. I've already got like my, my list of like, okay, didn't talk enough to him this time. I'm going to make sure I make some time <laughs> next time. Um, so most people, if they know, you know, from the, the bow building world, uh, you do a ton of, I, you know, I don't know how, what, what you would title it with, you know, primitive archery or you use, you know, your whole thing is called organic archery, which I love that title. I love that name. Um, so I want to do a little bit of where that came from because anymore, everything is all about like the tech, right? Especially in, in the archery world, like where every company's cranking out the new tech on their new models every single year. And it's like, well, how different can it really be? But then like you're doing things, making bows that are the same as they were like hundreds and thousands of years ago, you know? So like, where did that diversion kind of happen for you to want to pursue that route of it? I think, um, I think probably a lot of people that end up in the primitive archery world started in the compound or at least the fiberglass recurve sort of scene. Um, for me, I shot a compound when I was younger, but also traditional bows. And then I left for the military kind of came back and I did buy a compound when I first got back from the military Mm -hmm. and I hunted with it for one season and it's not that it wasn't challenging, but it just wasn't quite what I was looking for. It just mm-hmm. didn't really feel, it just felt too mechanical, um, a little bit sure. too much like an arrow machine instead of <laughs> like a true bow. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just my, my personal preference, you know? So I, I bought a fiberglass recurve and, uh, started shooting every single day, which was great, but I eventually started breaking a lot of arrows. So I thought to save money, I would learn how to make my own arrows. So started with arrow making, which is an entirely separate craft altogether. That's yeah. got a pretty steep learning curve, uh, especially trying to make like high quality matched wooden sets. Mm-hmm. Um, so did that for a few months and then decided it was a little bit weird to be shooting these homemade wooden arrows that looked very primitive out of uh, fiberglass, you know, mass produced recurve. For sure. So I decided I would make my own bow and I, like all things that I do, I research myself to death before I even <laughs> yeah. buy the first tool. So I <laughs> yeah. watched every YouTube video I could find, uh, read every single book that I could find, and uh, eventually started to make these bows. Um, started with board bows, which are a good way for beginners to learn, just from hardwood bo- boards at the store, you know, like red oak and hickory sure. and things like that. Yeah, and uh, then eventually trans uh, kind of transgressed uh, into bow staves, which is cut from a live tree. And then right. you use the portion directly under the bark to make the bow. So were you, but, were uh, you uh, doing all of this kind of self-taught or did you have somebody that was like helping you along, teaching you some of the things that cut that learning curve down? Or was it just like, I'm just going to do this and I'll make all the mistakes myself? 
<laughs> yeah, it was all self-taught just through books yeah. and videos, yeah. whatever I could find online and whatever I could read. And there was definitely a steep learning curve. It, uh, sure. it took my first probably 10 bows were pretty crude. <laughs> and uh, then I, you finally start to figure out, you know, the tillering process, which is the actual act of bending wood and turning it into a bow. And uh, from there, it starts to get a little bit easier. You start to kind of maybe after half a dozen or a dozen failed attempts, you get one that's really a great shooter. Yeah. And then uh, then, then you're you're hooked. So And a lot of it, I imagine, is like with, with a lot of those, once you feel what a good one's like, like now that's your reference point. Like especially kind of starting from like really zero experience with it and then also not having like the the mentor to show you like this is what it needs to be. Like it's really kind of like an intrinsic thing. And, and you had mentioned to me when we were uh, when we were messaging on Instagram because I had told you like I shot a recurve at Winterstrong with Brandon and uh, that was my first time ever doing it. And I was just like, you hit that moment and you're like, oh, there is something that's kind of different about about that versus like the the hand-me-down compound I have. Um, but once you feel like that difference and you feel like what a good one's like, I imagine it's like, okay, now I at least have a reference point for get it at least to this good from now on. And then like you progress from there, everything after that. Definitely. Yeah, I think, uh, I think there's that kind of awakening moment when you realize that these are not primitive. I mean, they are primitive tools, but the word sure. primitive doesn't have to mean crude. Some yeah. of these bows, you know, a finely crafted wooden bow is equally as powerful or more powerful than even the top of the line fiberglass bows. So when you yeah. finally get one that shoots true and hard and has laser straight, you know, flat trajectory from say 25 or 30 yards, mm-hmm. it's kind of a little bit of an oh shit moment, you know, like a, a great awakening where you're like, wow, these are, these are definitely effective t- tools. And then yeah, that's it even, you know, that's even yeah. multiplied the first time you run an arrow clean through a white tailed deer, like it's not even there. And you're like, wow, this is definitely not a toy. You know, these are weapons that have been used for war and hunting for thousands of years and when you when you bring that part into it too it makes you like have a little bit more like respect for it in in one sense but then also like kind of a sense of awe almost like this worked for all of human history until like just very recently like you know (laughs) like it's literally been like i don't know what maybe 50 or 60 years since like the original like compound quote unquote yeah. came out like not that long in, in scope of all of the time that bows have been around. So it's like, I understand, you know, as we get technology, there are things that can make things more efficient or, you know, whatever, but it's like this worked for this long for a reason, you know? And then, like you said, when you get one uh, that like shoots well, and then it does exactly what it's supposed to do still taking down an animal or whatever it is, you're like, Oh, well, yeah, this still works just as good as it always has. Like you don't need anything yeah. different, you know? I I get worried sometimes with the, you know, the compounds and the way that it's going. It, it's almost like they become obsolete as quickly as tech, as every other piece of tech becomes obsolete. You know, the new iPhone yeah. comes out every couple of months. The new, the very next season after you buy this, you know, compound bow, it's obsolete in some way and they're marketing some new version of it. And it feels mm-hmm. kind of like they're, I don't have anything against compounds. I, I would love to see everybody out in the woods hunting, especially with the, a bow and arrow, regardless of what device shoots it. But uh, at the same time, I think we'll reach a point where we start to completely lose the spirit of archery. I mean, the just the bent stick is really the true 
essence of our heritage and our ancestry as hunter-gatherers and you know it's within keepings of i guess the spirit of archery which is some of what some of the greatest archers of all time sort of referred to as this mystical you know connection to the bow and arrow i i get sad when i see it becoming so mechanical and so precise and so refined and technological that it, it, it loses that sort of I guess, a divine connection of the human being to the bow, you know, just as an extension of your body and your mind, kind of like a, a martial art instead of something that sure. we have to just tech to death. Yeah. Well, and then even think the, for you specifically, and then like making one yourself even amplifies that connection even more, like crafting it and understanding like every grain of wood on that thing and like putting every piece together, like that's even makes that connection go even way deeper than that when you when you talk about like having a connection to the tool and the technology point of it I think really you see this in in fitness stuff a lot like I'm a coach so like I deal with fitness tech and stuff like that on you know whoops and garments and like all this kind of stuff right like they're all meant to give us data and feedback to help us make better training or recovery decisions right but like sometimes people just become so dependent on the tech that they forget what things feel like. And so like they'll get like they'll see their recovery score in the morning on their whoop, right? And it's like, oh, you you only slept 60% last night, like don't train hard today, but you wake up and you feel fine. But yeah. now I'm just paying attention to this thing. It says, "Oh, I can't train today even though I feel great. I'm not going to train." Like you there's totally this disconnect and like what we're actually feeling in our bodies just because some piece of tech has told us and like like you were saying every time another model comes out like and there's one thing different it makes everybody think like oh this is going to make me better it's going to make it easier but then like are you removing a piece of it that actually makes you a better shooter rather than just like relying on the thing you know what i'm saying a better shooter and a better hunter too because yeah. i i really don't see i mean there's some there's some form of accomplishment with these guys that are taking, you know, 80 to a hundred yard shots with these bows. But at the same time, I, I, it's kind of like losing the spirit of archery when you lose sort of the fair chase pursuit. You know, if a deer is 85 yards away from you and, and your presence is not even, you know, they have no clue that you're even in the woods and you, you know, slock an arrow in a big arc over the, you know, the terrain and hit them from that far away i feel like you kind of start to lose the the spirit of woodsmanship and uh just the challenge of of getting in very close to animals and learning about animal behavior and uh i mean it's impressive I, i'm very impressed by people who can take those long shots but with something yeah. like completely primitive homemade tackle you have to be able to get close to animals like within 25 yards at least preferably inside yeah. of 20 for a high percentage shot for sure I have a, a a buddy of mine who was actually just on the podcast a few weeks ago. Uh, Zach Owens is his name, and uh, he's he picked up traditional archery as a as a child. I mean, they all started shooting like you know self made little bows when they were kids, like him and his siblings. And uh, but he says his mindset, like because he still does a little bit of rifle hunting, he shoots a little bit with his compound hunt, like he does it all still. But he said his mindset changed so much when he started bow hunting because versus rifle because he's like. I started rifle hunting like a bow hunter. It's like, yeah, I can make a 500-yard shot, but I'm going to try and get to 70 because that's what I can shoot with my bow, you know, with a rifle in my hand because I think that makes me a better hunter. And he's like, and then I started shooting a recurve 
And so when I was with my compound, I started treating that like I had a recurve in my hand. So I'm like, I got to get inside of 20. He's like, I've yeah. had plenty of shots. I've passed up at 40 just because like, I can get closer. Like I can still keep going. So it's like that, that connection and improving your skills in, especially in hunting, like every other skill except for the shot itself about hunting is just as important. You know, it, all that tech makes it really easier to not have to do that when you can shoot something from a crazy distance away. But like, like you were saying, like woodsmanship, like that is something that I think is, is becoming more disconnected as, as the tech gets more impressive. Yeah. I'm sure there's a, a feeling of accomplishment too, when you, when you nail a perfect shot from far away, but I, I don't think it can, mm-hmm. can compare to taking a shot from, you know, six or seven yards away on a big game animal. You hear them breathing. Yeah, it's right there just in front of you. You can see every hair on the animal and every detail, and they have no idea that you're there. That is a thrill. That thrill will almost make me black out every time I get so amped up. Dude, you just like even just saying it, like you sat up and you like have a big smile on your face. Yeah. Like you're just like reliving it already right now. <laughs> it's uh, it's an adrenaline dump for sure. Um, so was was the hunting aspects of it something that you had done prior to making the bows yourself? Like, have you always hunted or was that something that you picked up when you did, when you like got into the bow making world as well? Um, I always hunted. It was a mix of bow and rifle growing up. Okay. And then when yeah. I, when I transitioned to making my own bows, I pretty much abandoned all of the forms of hunting mm-hmm. and just, uh, I got bit by the bug and I, I've used nothing but homemade primitive equipment for probably yeah. the last probably the last seven or eight years exclusively. So the, where you are, you're in the Midwest, correct? Yeah. Southeast Nebraska. Yeah. So is it mostly, mostly whitetail down there? Do you do any other, any other game with, with what you hunt? Uh, we've got world-class turkey hunting down here too, but, uh, right here in the Southeast corner next to the Kansas border. But, uh, I, I have not had great luck with turkeys. They're very difficult mm-hmm. to kill with a primitive bow. Um, and I've wounded a couple like throughout the process of learning and that doesn't feel great. So I mostly right. just hunt whitetails and small game here now and then do some traveling yeah. around for large game as well. But where, I, do, where do you go to do that? Um, mostly Idaho. Um, oh, a little bit of right, just a small game like grouse and um, like rock chuck hunting in Colorado and stuff like that. But nice. Have you gone? So you do any of the the big game out here in Idaho? That's where I am. So when you said Idaho, I perked up a little bit. So uh, when you come out here, do you do elk or anything like that? Yeah, I usually team up with a couple of my friends and we go out on a three three man crew and try to get an elk. I, I haven't killed one yet, but uh, looking forward to the day that I do. <laughs> They're cool animals, man. They're, they're like my, some of my favorite animals just to watch, you know, like you talk about, uh, the idea of understanding, understanding animal behavior. Right. And so much of that is just going out there and being with them and watching them, you know, like you can't, like there's, there's some aspect to, you know, like the, the e-scouting thing can be helpful if you're going to an area like where you don't even live across the country. Right. Like, cause you can't go spend time in the woods for, all this time prior if you don't even live in that area, which that kind of goes back to like that tech conversation we were just talking about, you know, but, uh, going out and just watching animals, like you, you learn so much just observing. And that's one of the things, cause I, I've taken up, 
hunting. I'm, I would, what do you call a adult onset hunter? Like it wasn't anything I uh, grew up doing. I had all my friends and everybody did it. I fished my whole life, but the hunting thing I just never did for, I mean, no, no good reason really. Um, but as I picked it up, like that's one of my favorite things is just going out and hiking and just like seeing how many animals we can see and then just watching them. Like there's no other motive behind us. Just like, let's just see what they do. You know, like I want to see what, what, where they're going and why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I, Idaho switched to the lottery system a couple of years ago too, which I haven't been able to get an elk tag for two years, but that's kind of, we follow the same idea is whichever one of us ends up getting an elk tag through the lottery system. If both of the other guys strike out, we'll just get small game permits or maybe black bear or deer or mountain lion permits. Yeah. And then basically anything's open game because you've got three hunters out there all with self bows and everybody's got a tag for something. So we can kind yeah, of for sure. scout together and film if anybody feels like doing that. And yeah, yeah. It, it adds to the experience, even if you're just watching and looking for other other animals. Have you done much uh, predator hunting at all? Because the concept of that like is wild in itself, right? But then you're talking about if we're doing it with your like your your style, your bows, like you're getting pretty close to some like literal dangerous animals. You know what I'm saying? Like getting 20 yards from a bear or a mountain lion or whatever it is. You're like, that's a totally different type of like awareness and hunting. You've got to be on top of at that point. Yeah. I've not killed anything except coyotes with the primitive longbow. So I've, I've just, yeah. I've had tags for like black bear and stuff, but uh, just haven't had a shot opportunity. Yeah. So if I have a tag They're though really for a black bear or uh, I would, I'll feel it out for a mountain lion. I don't know. There are certain, pre there are certain predators where I just would have to go by my gut instinct in that moment. You know, like, do I really need for this sure. animal? Is it an experience that I, you know, you can do the non-lethal hunting thing too and have a equally as profound experience. So totally, I, I, I weigh yeah. those kind of things out. Like if it was to be a mountain lion or a wolf or something that, you know, maybe has more of a spiritual aura to it, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. That makes sense. And it's uh, the connection that you have to in the historical context to, to archery in general and hunting is really cool. And that was one of the things I wanted to ask you and talk to you about was like, did that, you know, going back and reading the history or like observing like why certain cultures had bows that were this size or what they were using them for. And because you've posted about like messing around with different types of bows that you're that you're, that you're working on, like the reason, you know, short bows and long bows and all these other styles. Did that just become like a, you became obsessive about the history part of it too. And that was just really interesting. So you wanted to kind of explore all the different avenues from there because I'm like, I love history stuff in general. So I can imagine like finding a hobby and then like backlogging all of the history up until that point on that thing was probably a big part of your experience with it. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's difficult to get into primitive archery without getting caught up in all the history because every yeah. book that you read, every video that you read is taking some sort of design inspiration from some sort of maybe historical artifact or some sort of, you know, region or tribe that sort of spoke to them in their hunting methods and their bow production methods mm -hmm. and there are so many different kinds. I mean, every continent every continent has its entirely separate sort of archery world and then each individual tribe often has their own just archery beliefs and archery practices so 
It can definitely be a lot. And uh, I have experimented with quite a few. Uh, I've, I was really drawn to like Eastern woodland style archery, uh, like Native American style archery on the East for a while. And then all of mm-hmm. the, the, the Comanche tribe really sort of was brought into the spotlight and I, I became fascinated with their horse archery. So started making some of the Comanche horse bows. And then, uh, in one big messy circle, I came back around to sort of ancient European artifacts, which would be, I mean, probably more my heritage, you know, as a sure European, uh, I guess ancestry. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure that's what yeah. uh, drew me to it in the end. But, uh, yeah, the ancient like Neolithic bows and bows that were co- in, uncovered in ancient Europe in the in the peat bogs and things like that are what has really that's really taken my heart and what I've ran with and sort of built my business on. And that's really cool. Do you notice a dip? I mean, like I'm sure there's differences in the style and how they actually make them, but from like a a preference standpoint, like you're talking about those those ones that you know the European style ones, but do you feel like there's one that you shoot better or like you just prefer to hold or whatever it is? Like you just kind of, is it, is it that European style one that you were just mentioning that like you just enjoy that one more or is there something about it that, that you, you connect with? I think the thing that keeps bringing me back to it over and over again is just shootability, like excellent shooting characteristics, good accuracy, very smooth bows because they're very long. Um, the original artifacts, some of them were up to 74 inches long. So, and a lot of different cultures throughout history practice, you know, man height longbows where every archer just makes the longbow as tall as they are. And then you would have a good balance Mm. of power and speed and favorable string angle and good shooting characteristics for each individual person. So they are much longer than a lot of other regions and, uh, they're very durable because they're very, wide they they have a lot of wood you know that that can evenly distribute the stresses so they're durable they perform well in all kinds of weather climates and they're just very accurate and smooth to shoot so as far as me being able to shoot them and me being able to hit things that i want to hit time and time again i would go with the neolithic longbow every time you're just going to get me going down a rabbit hole wanting to read all this stuff to you, man. Like, I'm just so fascinated by it now that I just am, uh, I'm, I'm, like I told you when I, when I had messaged you before, um, I'm, I'm so attracted to that, to the idea of, of traditional archery. And I think for a lot of the same reasons that, that you were saying too, just that, you know, sort of you, you almost just kind of can't explain it connection to like, I, this feels like I should be doing this for some reason. And, uh, and, you know, the more you get into it, the more you probably have a, a better way of explaining it. But I had sent you, um, like last week, a video when I had taken my little guy to the archery range here in town. Yeah. And it was his first time because he'd seen me shoot in the yard a bunch and I needed to go get, you know, I have a compound. Like I said, I had, I had to go get a new uh, rest installed. I don't have, I don't, I don't have the knowledge to do that well. So I took it into the shop to do it and they have a big range there. And he walks in, he's like, do you think they have any kid bows? Nice. And I was like, we can ask. And I was like, we can ask. He's like, we don't have any to sell, but you know, do you want to shoot one? And his eyes get like really wide and they brought him out that little orange you know, plastic yeah. or whatever it was. Uh, and I sat with him and he's, you know, he's not, he's two and a half. It'd be three in a couple of months, I guess. But like he, he stands there and I'm pulling it back with his hands and like me doing it for him so he can just feel. 
And he just like in that video I sent you, he's just giggling like when that arrow releases, like he loved it. And then literally 10 minutes later, he just stands there by himself. He's like, no, I got it. And just rips the thing back and like, just let's go. Like, I mean, it just came so natural to him. I'm like, okay, this is, this definitely means something. How easy he just picked that up. You know what I mean? It's awesome. I mean, I've, I I think it's just in our DNA, just from maybe tens Mm -hmm. of thousands of years of use or, or maybe some other type of connection, but you can watch these videos of, you know, the, the tribes that are still living their hunter-gatherer lifestyle, like the Hadza or some of the uh, South American tribes and these kids, you know, maybe one and a half, two years old are, are practicing with their bows just the same as the adults. And it just, yeah, it's just a natural awesome. movement and kind of like throwing a stone, you know, you really don't have to think about throwing a stone. I think the bow and arrow is very, same, very much the same. It's uh, very intuitive. For sure, I've, uh, I've I've referenced this book probably several times on the podcast, but we read it in our in our book club recently for the the guys that I coach. But uh, it's called "Land of the Spotted Eagle" by Luther Standing Bear, who was a Lakota chief in the like early 20th century, like 20s, 30s, 40s around there. He was one of the last ones, and uh, the whole book is essentially like how the Lakota's societal structures became what they are, and like explained like how they work as a society. It's super interesting, buddy. When he talks about like the kids, uh, all of them, like the day they turn four years old, they start learning how to make their own. And they're all just like, I think they said like, they just shoot reeds as arrows so they can just shoot as much as they want. They don't like hurt anybody or anything like that, but they go out and they teach them how to do it. Like the minute they're four years old, they start teaching them how to do it. And like, they kind of, you know, you only had like three, you know, occupations, if you will, like in a tribe, you're either like a hunter, you're a warrior, or you're like the the, the medicine man, basically. So very few of the kids actually grew up to be that. Most of them were either hunters or warriors. So yeah. like, it's literally from the, you know, as early as they can probably remember, they had one in their hand. And so like when I was, when I had taken him that last, last week, it was like, okay, he, and he's asked me every single day. Really? And so, <laughs> yeah, he like, he wants to go back every day. And so, uh, and so I'm like, man, this is, if he's into it already, like, I'm just going to feed that and foster that. Cause that's going to be awesome if he just dives in as deep as he is, as I am already at almost, th- you know, 30 yeah. and then he's two. So it's like, <laughs> like he's going to have a way bigger jump on it than I did. That was uh, one of my greatest memories growing up is just my, my father putting a bow in my hands as early as I was able to understand how to use it. I would say I probably got my first mm-hmm. one yeah, around age three, maybe, and carried mm-hmm. it with me everywhere. There's just dozens of yeah. pictures of me carrying this little bow around everywhere I went. So it was a fond memory. That's so great. There's also a, you know, and maybe this is a different a thought process to it as it relates to the primitive style of stuff and like the handmade aspect of things. You know, say what you will about whatever's happening on all sides of the planet right now and even within our own borders, right? But like having those kind of skills like that's going to, that's, it's, it's invaluable almost because there could be a time where like all kinds of production stuff is just not there anymore. You know, like, I mean, we're, we're in the middle of a week of just like, I am legend movie level gas prices right now. I think they're actually higher than they were in the movie when it was supposed to be the apocalypse. Right. And like, and, but like those kind of things go on and like having skills that you don't need any other people to produce that thing for you, I think that kind of stuff is invaluable. And, you know, I don't know if you're talking about what we were talking about prior, the book that you're 
that you're working on. I don't know how much you want to talk about that or can talk about it yet if it's not quite done. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to um, talk about it if but, you've got questions. Yeah, it's no big deal. Yeah, I mean, but that just kind of goes like right in line with that. It's like teaching people how to kind of do this on your, uh, what you do, learning how that process and making a bow on your own too. So, I mean, was that kind of the motivation for for wanting to, to write it? Um, I think it's more just sharing the craft with everybody, sharing just the... Yeah. the the experience of like building a bow with your own hands. And then if they desire, you know, going out and, and providing for themselves or their families with it, it's uh, it's kind of unlike anything else. And we opened up, you know, the, the bow building workshops, um, last year. Yeah. So we're, we're in our second year now. Um, and that's been great. That's been uh, one of the best things I've ever done because I have people that come from all over the country and uh, they come here for three days and from start to finish build a long bow by themselves. I mean, essentially with minimal instruction, I might, I might step in in a few like very key areas that absolutely can't be messed up and sort of explain to them like, yeah. Hey, you have to understand that like we're building this bow in three days, but when you're back home building these by yourself, you can take two weeks on this. If you want, you could take, you could, you know, work on it an hour here, an hour there after work. And we have to get the entire thing done from start to finish in basically two and a half days so that we can shoot, you know, for the last sure. afternoon. So I'll step in a little bit, but, yeah. uh, that's been really great. And then, uh, just, writing the book was just a way to kind of put all my thoughts down on paper because yeah, you, if you archery is like any other rabbit hole, there's just many experts out there that have lived and many professionals who have done it for a living. And many people have written books and they all have their own different ideas or maybe their own different, you know, sort of things that they stick mm -hmm. to religiously and uh, none of them are right or wrong. So I just kind of wanted to show my way a little bit. It's just uh, yeah, I've created sort of a way that can work with most trees. Like a lot of the different books we'll be talking about how you, they'll talk to you about every single tree species, all the different designs that apply to every tree species, like all the different designs from all over the world and the recurves and the different mm -hmm. profile shapes and everything. And it can be a lot for someone just starting out. So I kind of want to just show sure. people like, here's a design that's very simple that you can apply to most tree species and, and be able to create a successful bow with. So, And that's cool too, because the, the, like the workshops that you do, they're fairly intimate, right? Because it is like such a in-depth process. Like you can't, you know, maybe you can, I don't know. This is just me assuming, I guess you probably couldn't stroll in with like a hundred people in a weekend and be able to like roll through that with everybody in three days, yeah. you know? So this, it seems like this book is a way to maybe like, maybe if you're not able to make the trip out, like here's at least some good information for you to get started on your own and kind of pursue the path that you did a little bit, like just going through and, you know, messing up and doing it again and just going the self-taught model, but having some, at least some guidance to, to start that process. Yeah. With. And to, I, I want people to understand also that this is not the way, right? This is just a way. And, uh, sure. it's, yeah. yeah, it's, uh, it's been good. Hopefully, hopefully I know from reading enough books <laughs> that, uh, reading a book and actually putting <laughs> tools on wood is, is totally different. And once you finally get into it, you know, you're going to run into sure. a lot of problems, but hopefully it can, uh, yeah, spark some interest in, in newcomers who have never maybe attempted before to, to give it a try. And I do really like to keep the That's classes awesome. small and intimate. We do usually, we do yeah. only three usually. Um, we have done one class with four, which was about 
that was about maxed out. We were really, there was a lot of moving parts with four yeah. people trying to do it all at once. So, um, yeah, I really imagine. like to be able to give everybody focus, individual instruction. And then when we have smaller groups, we really go crazy with the food and, you know, feed everybody like royalty while they're here. And, yeah, for sure. And have little <laughs> after hours by That's the fire awesome. and, and feed everybody drinks and whatever they want. So yeah, it just helps <laughs> us create a little bit more of an intimate, like small group environment. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. I was hesitant about having to get a new phone and a new phone number, but with Mint, you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone and your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or for a family, and at Mint, families start at two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/waypoint. That is mintmobile.com/waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. That's killer, man. One of these days, I'll do my best to make it out there. It's I've been I've been wanting to for a long time, so hopefully I can one of these days. Yeah. I'll look forward to having um, you out whenever the time's right. <laughs> yeah. The uh, One of the things I want to ask, too, because it seems like, and, and the Instagram part of it is always really strange, right? Because you see a lot of stuff on Instagram, you assume that that's the whole person, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, because that's all you ever see. So it's just like this, Corey just must make bows and like just have a bow in his hand 24 hours a day or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is, which maybe that's true. But like, I want is there anything that you like other things that you like enjoy doing or, or take part in or whatever it is like that you just enjoy? Yeah. I, I've, I've always been a very private person, so I've, I've got a pretty distant relationship with Instagram. And I do like that. I mean, I've kind of tailored it in such a way, which, by the way, everybody should understand that Instagram is tailored. Okay, that's not people's real lives. Yes. You know, we're all very normal. Yes. Uh, we all have our own set of unique individual challenges and things that we're working on at that time or things that we're going through at that time. So just know that Instagram is not 100% real. It's just one facet of my life, right? I'm, I'm a professional bowyer and I hunt exclusively mm-hmm. with primitive bows and I want to share my artwork and share my experience mm-hmm. through archery on the internet. But uh, yeah, I have a girlfriend uh, who lives with me. That's a big part of my life. She is a yoga in- instructor um, and so we're really big into to that kind of stuff, just uh, holistic medicines and 
movement therapies and stuff nice. like that. Um, let's see, I do a lot of mountaineering. I was into uh, adventure motorcycle riding for a lot of years. I just very recently sold my bikes uh, to focus on some other things, which is uh, this year a little bit sure. more homesteading type stuff. Very interested in chickens and gardens and go. livestock and things like that. Um, very into fitness in my spare time. Yeah. So that's awesome. I've seen the, I've seen the, some of the training rigs and stuff that you've got with like the pull up bars and the dip situation and dip bars and stuff that you've got. It's, it's rad. I've like ever since I've seen, I've, cause I've seen a couple people that have like a similar ish setup and like, I don't have a ton of space in my yard, but it's just like, dude, I could, I, I would want, yeah. I want to put that in the backyard. That just seems awesome. Like it just kind of all falls back into the, the natural holistic health sort of approach that kind of, I mean, it seems like it's kind of a part of every aspect of your life at this point, right? I mean, like if you're talking about being healthy and, you know, getting your own food through hunting or growing it, if you're going like the homestead route or whatever it is, and maybe it was, you know, earlier when I talked about all the things shutting down in the world, that could just be like the, the, you know, the cynic in me that just is preparing for like all of the end of the world stuff, right? But on a very practical sense, like those kind of things, doesn't have to be like this massive undertaking to get a couple chickens and like start the process, you know, and learn skills that are going to be, that are going to benefit you in some way. Like it, it can be just small things at a time. So it's cool that you've like got that approach kind of in all of those different areas. Yeah. You hit on a couple of things there actually. Um, the first one being the organic lifestyle, right? That kind of is where the name for the business came from mm-hmm. because I was hiking in the mountains with one of my, with my best friend from my childhood a few years ago and we were coming up with these different names for businesses and things because it had gotten to the point where I was selling enough bows that, uh, it was, it was starting to replace my income. So I had to start thinking about like making this an official business and, you know, possibly quitting my job and going full time. So we were brainstorming on ideas and after many failed attempts, he just said, what about organic archery? (laughs) Like you kind of have this lifestyle, you know, with the organic foods and just the organic, I don't know, beliefs in all things, I guess. So I thought that that had Mm -hmm. a nice ring to it. So went with organic archery just because it does kind of describe the lifestyle that I at least strive to live. Not everybody's perfect all the time. I still like Mm -hmm. to smash a, you know, a large pizza every once in a while or go out for burgers and beers just like everybody else (laughs) but uh and then uh, the other thing is like about the end of the world right you were saying you're always thinking about that and just what's going to (laughs) happen and not that not let's preface this not to say like i'm some doomsday prepper kind of guy but it's like you can just see things and be like okay maybe i need to start working on some stuff over here right like trying to become more self-reliant than i previously was like i don't have some big huge shelter not to say that wouldn't be awesome still but like yeah, I just wanted to preface that. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about it too, like making myself more self-reliant and not in a prepper type of way because yeah. I, sometimes I think it's kind of a little bit comical when people, you know, you watch these prepper shows and stuff and they're great entertainment. And there's people in like downtown right. Washington, D.C. with like two years worth of food supply in their <laughs> studio apartment, you know, in a crowded inner city area. And I'm thinking, okay, come on, like how long can you really, and they've got a taser for protection, you know, and it's like, you're going to tase your, you know, you're going to tase everybody to protect your two year food supply in the middle of an inner city. So some of it's pretty comical, but I don't think that the, 
I don't think that the end of the world maybe necessarily has to look like the zombie apocalypse or nuclear war. Like, as far as I'm concerned, it might just be sort of the dissolution of, or like the dissolving of the modern systems. Like maybe we can become a little bit more small community, a little bit more self-reliant as we realize that some of these bigger systems that we've been operating on are so fragile and just, uh, untrustworthy and they fluctuate in prices and and we fluctuate in supply and demand of everything and and, and inflation and all this stuff maybe the end of the world just looks more like people the end of the known world we'll call it being more like people um Mm. just becoming more self-reliant and being able to provide provide for themselves so, so that maybe some of these mega stores and these you know technopolies and just these giant industries that control everything, maybe they start to lose some of their power as we become more self-sufficient. Maybe some of the mega grocery store chains start to lose their ability to, you know, give us fear with pandemics and things like that by, by jacking up our food supply. Like who cares if you can produce your own food? Yeah, it really is kind of like the biggest way of rebellion in a way against like a massive system like that is to not need the system rather than like, you're not like actively fighting against it, but you're just like, okay, go do your thing. I don't even need you. You know what I mean? And so it's like, if there was enough people that did that, I think you'd start to see a lot of that stuff you're talking about where it's like there, you know, there's this pocket that's growing of people that no longer need all of these things that the structure has put in place to, you know, whether it's control the, the information that's being put, given to them or controlled like food supply or like whatever it is like as long as you can be in a place you're like whatever go do your thing i'm gonna be over here i don't need you like that almost is <laughs> that's that's almost more effective than like actively fighting it yeah, in some degree for sure <laughs> you know what i'm saying it's a, uh, it's a really man you're gonna get me into like my I'm like, I'm like dozing off thinking about yeah. all these things already again. Like we've got, uh, you know, we live in town in a, you know, relatively large ish area, but have close to a quarter acre total, which is plenty of room for, you know, family of soon to be four to, you know, two kids and be able to grow what we need and hunt what we need for the, I mean, like, you don't, I think that's kind of one of the misconceptions also is when people start to get into this realm of living, whether it be growing your own food or whatever it is, it's the concept that's like, I need a million things to start right away. And I, I don't have nearly enough spaces, whatever you want. You know, there's all these just kind of false barriers that people would try to put up. It's like, well, just start with one thing that you know you can handle at whatever level that is and get really good at that, whether it's like maybe just get one or two chickens or one and like replace where you get your eggs from. Like, like just worry about that first. And then from there, it's like, do with what, do what you can with what you have. And I think that a lot of people, it's like the paralysis by analysis thing getting started in a lot of this stuff. And so I don't know if that was like the same kind of thing with you. And I mean, you seem like to the point now and maybe I'm wrong, but like, where you've got a good, at least a good handle on the things that you do have. But a lot of people, it's like, well, he's, he's making bows. He's, he's gardening. Like he's doing, he's doing all this stuff. And he never needs to leave his house because <laughs> he's got all this stuff there. It's like, I don't have any, I don't have any of that. Like, how do I even start? You know? So was there some kind of like, what were the kind of the steps in a lot of this stuff that you guys took 
on your place to to kind of get to some of these points where you feel comfortable with? Well, we we are on about one acre, and we we're kind of in a small town, mm-hmm. but there are people around. I mean, I have neighbors, and we're in a community, so it uh, and we're you know fifteen yep. minutes away from a major city, so we're not remote by any means, but, uh, just starting small. Like I, I look at a lot of, I read and watch a lot of these urban farming type guys and they'll just talk about like, yeah, so you've got a third of an acre, but what do you have? A third of an acre of grass. What does grass do for you? Okay, cool. You got a lawn, a grass, you got to maintain it. You got to mow it. You got to, uh, whatever. If you're into the fertilizer and all that stuff, we don't spray our yard or anything like that, but maybe you've got fertilizer. Maybe it's a summer long side project that you're constantly working on just to mow your grass and it does nothing for you. Most people don't care about their grass. Most people don't spend a lot of time in their grass, you know, so why are you not maximizing that space to create a small garden? Even just something as small as an eight by 10, which could produce more than enough food for you and your whole family over a growing season. And then as you start to overproduce on your property, you can start to think about preservation methods that solves the long-term food issue or the cold season food issue. And then also, if there's even more surplus than that, you can start looking out into ways to support your community, whether it's giving away um, extra produce that you've created. Or, I mean, there's tons of local rest. The, the, everybody's all about the farm-to-table stuff right now. The locally grown, like, support the urban farms, do all this type of stuff. So what, you know, like, you've got outlets to get rid of cash crops if you're making things like, you know, spinach and kale and stuff like that. But we definitely started small. Um, like, for example, with the, the bow building, I, I, you just have to start. You just got to work with what you got. I, yeah. I started, like, nine years ago in the basement of a musty old apartment complex. You know, it just had a basement under it, and I, would, I built a little workbench down there out of some scrap wood, and I had a couple basic tools, and I learned, and I just started with what I could source. And then it started to grow a little bit and I started to maybe get more interest in it. So I would invest in more tools and eventually put myself on the internet a few years ago, which, you know, helped it grow some more and get some traction. And then, um, you know, I worked up to the point where now I have a detached garage from the house that I've converted into a fully functional like bow making shop where three or four people can where three or four people can, you know, work at the same time, but people only see the end product. They only see like, Oh, this guy's got this cool shop with all these specialized tools. And it's like, yeah, but I started in a soggy old basement with no windows, um, with like a rasp and a draw Mm -hmm. knife and a crappy old bench, bench vice on a homemade wooden bench. So you just got to start with what you've got. And, uh, I mean, the last couple of years we've been doing smaller scale gardening, like lots of herbs, just tomatoes, um, stuff that's very easy to grow in a small, like it's probably only like a four by eight bed. And so we're expanding again this year, but I mean, we started small, just planting herbs and planter boxes. And so we're moving finally to a large scale garden this spring. So, and that's been, three awesome. that's been two years of just progression so just just start with what you've got yeah. and you'll you'll learn things along the way i think people think that they have to just go you know balls deep and like build this huge garden then when you crash and burn you crash and burn hard and like you lose your whole garden or you know you, you have to have this learning experience <laughs> right. on this humongous right. project where you could have just started with something small totally and the and that idea that 
you know, you said people only see this end product, right? And I think that how we were talking earlier as well, I, social media is like kind of the reason for that, right? I mean, they don't see the nine years or, you know, whatever it was prior to that of all of these steps that you had to take to get to here. It's kind of like the, you know, it's the cliche or whatever it is. It's like the 20 year overnight success, right? Like they don't see, they don't see 96% of the work that it took to get to this point where now it looks like you've got it all together, but it's like, okay, well, that's just, that's just very recently that that became a thing. And I understand that's like, that's kind of what social media is for. And you seem to be like in a good place with it where like, like you had said, you're very deliberate with where that goes and you keep a lot of things private on purpose. I think a lot of times people and I respect that because I think a lot of times people try to blend those two things too much and to their detriment, like personally, like it's just, there's so much of themselves out there now that like there is no real privacy to a degree anymore. So like trying to protect that as best you can, I think is very worthwhile effort at this point. <laughs> I would agree. Man, you hit on a couple of good things there. Like the overnight success thing. I think or people or people see the fit person, right? And like, oh, it must be easy for you because you, you know, you whatever, you're fit and you got all this energy and stuff. And it's like, yeah, but not everybody like everybody started somewhere. Like I remember the first time I ever stepped foot in a weightlifting gym and I was the scrawniest, weakest kid in the entire place. And I was so embarrassed. And there's just, you know, these meatheads all around me picking up big weights and we we all started somewhere and i think people people like to use time as their number one excuse that's what i've noticed i just don't have the time you wouldn't understand you've got all this time it's like do i really have any more time than you because especially people if you would log your screen time for example Mm. you would probably find out that i think the average is something like three or four hours a day that people are just wasting on screen time. That is a massive amount of time. (laughs) I would would say that's probably low. (laughs) Yeah. Let's call it, let's call it three to six hours every single day that you're wasting either watching television, uh, scrolling through mindless shit on the internet or or what have you, something that doesn't uh, contribute to your well-being. Maybe spending it at a bar or something three, four times a week. You could just, be a little bit more deliberate about your time. And it is difficult because these things are addictions. I mean, there's no doubt that like technology has been manufactured to be as addictive as possible. Everything that we have on a screen is addictive, whether they've, you know, manufactured the, whether they've specifically designed Netflix to, you know, play back at a certain speed or like to like move into the next episode without warning. Like that's, those are all addiction techniques. So you have to first understand that you have an addiction to technology which I'm just, I'm, I'm hitting on technology hard because I imagine that's yeah. probably the most like all encompassing addiction that people suffer from that wastes a tremendous totally. amount of time in their life. You can start to reallocate some of that time. And if you can even just put say one hour or even two hours every single day into your chosen like field of self progression, then you would be amazed where you'll be in. First of all, you won't even recognize yourself in one year. But where you can move your life in five years' time, giving one hour a day to like your chosen interest, it will blow your mind. So it's it's baby steps and it is hard. 
and it never ends either. Like right. they're like right now I'm, I, I don't want to allocate two hours of time blocks to finishing a book every day. I would rather be in the shop working, totally. but it's something that I know will, you know, help me out in the future. So I don't really know. I'm getting all hyped up and I'm forgetting where I'm going to bring this full circle. But uh, yeah, just stop using time as an excuse. You have more than enough time. And if you logged your screen time, it will probably melt your face off. And you can can go right in. Like, I don't know how to do it on many other phones, but like you can go in on an iPhone and it'll tell you exactly. And it'll tell you exactly what apps you spend the most time on, like to the minute. And so like that can be kind of like you said, (laughs) melt your face. But even if all you did was take one hour of that, what if it's six hours you're on your screen, right? Like that's not saying you got to go spend six hours doing something that, you know, that would be ideal, obviously. But like, even if you said, like you said, take one of those hours and put it towards something beneficial, like that's just gonna, it's, it's compound interest and it's gonna, that's gonna just grow exponentially over time. And then you can begin to like add more time into that. And then pretty soon, like, like you said, a year from now, five years from now, like you're, you're not even remotely the same person at all. And I think that's, I think looking that far ahead, like a lot of people don't, uh, like they can't even grasp that because like the theory of things that far in advance, like most people can't even like comprehend, like, what do you mean five years from now? Right? Like, how do I set a goal for five years from now? Like, I have no idea. Right. But then one of the one of the things that I like to do with them is like, okay, like whatever today's date is, let's think 10 years ago, 10 years in the past from this date. Like, what were you doing exactly on this date 10 years ago? Like, who are you with? What was your life like? And then you're like, how different were you 10 years ago? And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess I haven't. I'm not always just the same person. Like, that's what in the future, like we can work that again. But now, like, you got to start putting those things in place to whatever that person is. Start doing that stuff now, you know? Now is the key word. Like you have to become so hyper-focused on the now because if you really think about it, the future does not exist. It's imaginary. It's a projection of your mind and your thoughts and your desires. The past does, I mean, it exists, but not technically because it was just now, but at an earlier time. (laughs) At some point in time, 10 years ago was now. So really all you have is right now. So what, like you can't get, you can't get so caught up in these grand ideas and like these five-year plans, because first of all, as you move through the now, your, your five-year plan is going to shift as you learn new things. You might, Mm -hmm. you might say five years from now, I will have a, you know, I will have a thousand square foot garden and it will produce food for the whole community. And then you start with the now and you start working on your herb garden. You're like, okay, maybe this herb garden is good enough for like a year. So this is a lot of work, you know, but you're focused and you're making steps towards the direction. And then maybe, you know, maybe you move to a couple of those eight by 10 foot beds and you're like, okay, realistically, this is all I can manage. So now your five year plan just went out the window, but you're living in the now and you've, you've through experience and paying attention to what you're doing and paying attention to the positive change that you're, you're making, you've found that equilibrium for a place that you can, you know, positively affect your life and not uh, burn yourself out or, or, or not get so yeah. rigidly adhered to these future plans that you start to just like miss the signs that are right in front of you that are obvious and that are like leading you to a calm, happy, more self-sufficient lifestyle. Totally. And those, those long-term 
ideas, right? Like they're helpful for a general direction, right? Like, as you said, things are going to change all over the place on the way to whatever that is, because it might be totally different than what you had originally said. But it's like, if I know that this is the general area, like there's all kinds of different roads that might lead to where that is, or might, and it might end up somewhere totally different. But at least that gives me like maybe some lanes to start with and give you some concepts or parameters to begin. So it's not just like you're, you know, spraying stuff against the wall. You have no idea where to go, right? Like you've got you got parameters. So like start here. And then as you, like you said, as you just get more in depth with whatever it is, you're learning more things, you're realizing more things that that path will change. Might not be at all what you thought might be exactly what you thought. But like, you got to start to even understand like where that's going to go and like the, the work that it takes to get there. Yeah. So educating yourself first, right? And then mm-hmm. not becoming overwhelmed with this huge project that you have. Like I'll, I'll keep going back to the garden as, totally. as an example. Like instead of worrying about how you're going to produce enough food for your entire family and five and the community in five years, maybe you should probably just learn how to build some square boxes for your beds. Yes. And then maybe at tomorrow you can do some research and figure out how the soil, what the soil composition has to be. So you can figure out how to mix your compost and your whatever, you know, mm-hmm. small steps. Yeah. And everybody's always like, ah, we'll, we'll start on, you know, we'll start next Monday. Next Monday, <laughs> next Monday. doesn't exist. Like you, Next that, Monday on January 1st. <laughs> right. <laughs> that doesn't even exist. The, for all we know, the nuclear bombs could start falling any minute, right? So just... <laughs> how we brought it back to that. Yeah. You've uh, got, uh, you might as well just start... Exactly. That, you know, depending on whatever avenue it is, I, and I say this to a lot of the guys that I coach, just because there is so much of that, that paralysis to actually begin something, right? Whatever it is. Uh, I always, the the phrase I always like to use, and this is funny because I'm talking to somebody who like literally shoots very well for, you know, (laughs) that's a big part of your life. My, my phrase I use is uh, ready, fire, aim. Nice. And, uh, <laughs> so like if you're shooting a bow, that's probably not the best way to do it. Right. But, <laughs> but the idea of like starting something, like just get it going, like start something and then adjust as you, as you start, because like, that's how you actually get better at it is getting really bad, being really bad at it and realizing how not to do it anymore. And like yes. having those, like, you know, it's like sculpting, right? Like I, I'm trying to remember, I pro- it was probably Michelangelo who did David, you know, statue of David. And he said, was it Michelangelo? I think it was. And uh, now no, I feel bad that I can't actually remember. It's Let's just fine. say it was it's him. If, you, if I'm wrong, <laughs> somebody tell me later. Um, but they said, well, how did, you, how did you do it? And he said, I just chipped away everything that wasn't David. Yeah. And, <laughs> and like, so it's that process of constantly just chipping away, refining things to get to whatever that is. And like, you can't do any of that before you've actually done it. Exactly. So like it's there, no matter how crappy it is when you start like first dozen episodes of this podcast, I can't even listen to them. Like they (laughs) they were just so bad. And like, I I feel bad because I had good people on still. And I was like, I should have not had anybody on for, you know, six months because of how bad I, I can't even listen to these things. But it's like, I had to do that, you know? And it's like those first handful of bows you made, like you were saying before, like 
probably garbage to some degree. Oh, yeah. It's like you got better at them every time. They were abominations. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. Especially like compared to now. Like you look back and you're just like, what was I doing? I you still uh, I still keep my first my first ever Osage bow on the rack back here just so I can nice. look at it every once in a while and be like, wow, I can't I can't believe how pumped I was to have this bow <laughs> ten years ago. And now I look at my work and it's just it's not even on the same planet. So I love it, dude. It, I really like ready, fire, aim because I, I'm always telling people <laughs> like the action creates the motivation. It's not the other way yes. around. It's just like, yes. say you want to get your life in order. You're not, what do you wait around for the motivation to get off the couch and go for a run? Like if you mm-hmm. get outside and start running without asking any questions, with, without giving yourself any time to second guess, like within a very short period of time, you start to feel that sweat. You'll start to feel that sort of endorphin rush from the run, you know, and then... Mm-hmm. It, you, you become motivated through doing the thing, not through waiting for the motivation to do the thing. So yeah, very exactly. similar beliefs. The, the, uh, one of the examples I always love, you know, cause it's all behavior, it's all habits and behavior. Right. And so the, you know, when, when we're doing a lot of this stuff that I work, when I work with guys, I always tell them, you know, like, I'm going to make this, what we're going to practice, whatever this habit is, I'm going to make it so easy for you to do. I want you to ask me for more. Because yeah. like, that's the, like, show me you can do this thing first. Like the example I always use, I had a guy several years back that I coached that like literally drank zero water, like none. It was just like coffee and energy drinks all day. Right. And so I'm like, dude, I want you to drink one glass of water a day, one, eight ounces. And he's like, no, come on, I can do more than that. I'm like, no, you can't yeah. like, do, like, show me you can do this for like three weeks. If you drink eight ounces of water every day for three weeks, like then I'll give you more. And, but like that just in like, something so simple because what ends up happening is like the reason we do that is like, you know, you do that and it's so easy. You're probably going to do more at that point. Like if all I say is do, do five minutes worth of stretching today, like you get down and stretch, you're probably going to go 10, but I've set the bar and it's not like setting the bar too low, but it's setting it at a way where like, you know, you're going to be able to do it every time. Yes. Like, and then that, that time just gradually gets more and more. And now you're, now you're training every day or, you know, you're, eating healthier, you're doing all these things. And it's just a, pro- a matter of like adding that compounding interest and letting it compound over time. But it's said, man, like we're kind of just saying the same things to each other, but it's like, it's so yeah. exactly the same thing we're talking about. Just building those positive behaviors. I think, uh, I think we're going to experience sort of a, a changing of the tides. You know, you've got all these great speakers coming out. We've got new platforms that have been around for a while now that are sort of like putting out the, like, like snuffing out this, um, this like just manicured narrative that's meant to control people. Like we're getting a little more, bit more freed with our flow of information and there's some great people speaking about different things. And I think, I think, so long as people start to work on themselves and focus on, which is really all you control at the end of the day, you know, people get so, they spend so much time. This could be also another time suck spending all this time, you know, being activists and being pissed off and watching the news and like just following all this, Mm -hmm. all of this bullshit. It doesn't even matter. It changes every other day. We've been in coronavirus yep. for years. Where did that go? That's gone. I've not seen, I'm, I'm not trying to be an asshole. Okay. I, I know that the people have suffered and I know, and there's right. no judgment for people that are maybe afraid 
of microorganisms or pandemics or anything, but it just goes to show like, look how quickly we're on to the next thing. Russia. Oh my God, Russia. Fucking Russia has been, you can go back to like the 1950s and you got these presidents saying the biggest threat to our country is Russia. It's like, who gives a shit about Russia? Like, get your own, get yourself in order. It's just, it can be downright comical to me because of the amount of energy that people waste on shit that they Absolutely. will never control. These issues are so yeah. much bigger than you. You will never yeah. make a dent. You could waste your entire existence rioting and activating and, you know, and whatever against these global issues and you will not make a dent. So like, why don't you just get yourself in order, start to start to mm -hmm. fix the little things that are like messed up in your life, you know, and as you progress, maybe mm -hmm. you start people start to notice like, wow, your life is really like turning around. I've noticed, you know, you're happier, you're looking better, you're more fit, you've, you know, you've started doing these things that are really inspiring. And then they will, you know, you can share the secret like, yeah, man, just like take care of your own stuff, like make small steps to improve your life. And together we can uplift the tide of humanity with that technique, like just sharing the information like that in whatever form it comes through, whether it's self-development or, or fixing up your community or whatever. It's just like get yourself in order and together you lift up everybody. And I think that message Absolutely. is being pushed out on many, many different platforms right now. By people who are much more intelligent and much more like well articulated than me, with with all of the, and we've been to a degree kind of like bad talking tech, right? For for a decent part of this conversation, like with social media, there's a lot of crap that comes with it, but at the same time, there is good stuff too. Like it's not to say like the entire thing is just garbage because like the ability to connect with people who actually, you know, you have likes with, you have, you know, shared interests and you can build communities and, you know, actually begin to help each other. Like that was something that we never really had before. Like unless all those people were within five miles of you. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and, and there's something to be said with like having an actual local community as well. Like you can't live everywhere virtually and in life. Uh, you got to have some people around you like that you can physically see and touch and hug. Right. Um, but just the, the way to share positive things and, and helpful knowledge and, and lessons and things like that is those are the kind of things that are the good parts about it that, you know, I, I just have this feeling like one of these days it's going to all go the good, the good parts of the tech stuff too. Like, you know, it's either going to, it's going to be get so bad. That's like, we're, that somebody's just going to pull the plug. Yeah. Right? And maybe that's not ever going to happen, but it's like, that's why the local actually part of it is important too, because it's like a lot of people just have become so reliant on their, their friends, even if there are really good friends, right. That live all over the world. They don't have anybody in person. And then what happens when the phones go away, if that ever is the case? Like, right, I mean, like, you know, not, you know, we're talking about like all these doomsday scenarios, right? Like, even if whatever it is happens or doesn't happen, there could be a theoretical situation where like Instagram is gone yeah. all of a sudden for whatever reason. And like, now what? Like, what have you done to be ready for that scenario? You know, is, are you, are you, are you taking care of yourself? Do you have people that you can rely on in person and like, not feel completely lost if something like that happens. For sure. 
I think I think the over reliance on the internet as a whole is downright alarming. Like not only do people not have real friends, but I don't know if anybody's noticed, but we don't even have real money. Like all all you have is all you have is an imaginary number on a screen on the internet that shows you how much money you have. Like what what happens if the internet goes away? Like your little digital your little digital number for the currency that you exchange through a microchipped, you know, debit card is gone and you have lost Dude, not Everything. only not only that, but we just talking about the whole Russia thing from the last few weeks. Like we just saw every big, you know, institution or whatever just decide to not let Russian people access their money anymore. Like right. like that. Like I mean, it happened in a second. Can you imagine? So it's like if you think that's different here, like you're on one or, or something like that. It's the exact same. I feel like the social media thing you were saying that it's a uh, it's such a good place for people to spread a good message and that's so true but how can we ever get to a point where like people don't spread downright misinformation and it's not about like misinformation campaigns i'm not talking about like news but i'm just talking about right. like lifestyles that are not projected lifestyles that are not in the truth like people pretending to be happier than they are People, you know, maybe pretending to have more money than they have, like not only say the keeping up with the Joneses, you know, maybe back in the day, back in the 1950s or so when this, you know, white picket fence, like middle class life was very glamorized. Now, not only do you have to keep up with the Joneses or maybe even the people in your city, but we've reached a point where now you have to keep up with every single person on earth. And there are so many people who appear to be doing better than you or who appear to be happier than you. And I think we've become so addicted to, you know, the curated pages and the dopamine rush from the likes that there's not a lot of incentive to speak the truth. There's not a lot of incentive to like post a picture of yourself where you look normal. Like people, people don't look like that. Okay. And, and it's, it's just, this behavior is incentivized. And I think, I think there is a change, you know, that's happening where a lot of people are trying to use it for a good message, but I just don't know if you can ever use something that's designed for dopamine hits to really be like purest, as pure as it could be as far as like spreading good messages. The, one of the things that's interesting, and I know we got to wrap up here in a few minutes, but, um, you know, and there's a lot of people that are trying to come out with whatever the new version of, whatever social it is, right? Like, like this isn't like the other one. This is, we're not, we're not doing this. We're not censoring or whatever. And sure. But like nobody's on them. So it's like, it doesn't matter yeah. what you're saying at all. Like, cause nobody, like it's become so ingrained, like the four apps that everybody uses or the four websites that everybody goes to. Like, it's just that it, it's, they've such a hold, like it doesn't matter what happens anywhere else. Like, cause nobody's like, oh, I'm not going to go learn another new thing, another new app or whatever it is. Like, I'm not going to take that time. And so it's just interesting to say like, you know, how do we get, is there a point where those, the way to spread the message through social changes and it's like I, you, I don't know maybe we got to go back to like cb radios yeah <laughs> you know what i mean and like just go through the the old school radio waves how we did you know 100 years ago and do it that way if that's the only way to do it and and have it be exactly what we want it to be i uh, know I, <laughs> I spend a lot of time thinking about that like how 
especially how to run my business, you know, because a lot of it is through Instagram. That's where people find out. That's where yeah, people man. find out about the classes. That's where people find out about a lot of the products that I have for sale. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely like in the back of my mind all day, every day, just thinking about like, how can I start to separate myself from kind of this broken system and, and how can I make my business sort of evergreen so that I don't really have to participate as much in these, you know, these sort of frivolous pursuits because running at the end of the day, running a business on Instagram is not the greatest idea. Like, you know, it has the 24 hour relevancy cycle, like one to two days after you post something, it's gone. That never existed. That's blasted down in the matrix of Instagram so far. It might as well have never been posted. So that's not a very good business model. Whereas at least if you have something like YouTube, which we don't have to get into their, you know, their agendas and their censorship and everything that, you know, these tech companies are involved with. But at least with YouTube, it's an evergreen product where like you put out a YouTube video, maybe it takes five years and then all of a sudden it gains a bunch of traction. And then, you know, you can become monetized off this video that you put out years ago that will help your business grow, help your business be seen. I don't know what the answer looks like, but uh, I spend a lot of time daydreaming about it. <laughs> like what will the next you mean you're the same. Yeah, what will the next platform look like and how can we make it work? <laughs> I yeah, uh, dude, we are very similar in those regards because mine's a lot of the same way. You know, it's like one of these days, like I said, Instagram might just not exist anymore. Like, I don't know if you remember like six months ago or whatever, Instagram shut down for like a day and people lost their minds. Like it was like people were freaking out, like not knowing what to do. And I'm just like, wow, this is just so fragile. All of it. It's crazy. But well, man, I feel like we could probably do three more hours going down this rabbit hole, but I know (laughs) we got a little over an hour for you today. So, um, where is all of, you know, all of the things that we've been saying we don't want to have in our lives anymore, where can all those people use those things to find <laughs> right. you? <laughs> uh, okay. So my website is www.organicarchery.com. All one word, all lowercase. That's where you can find out about my classes and just uh, see galleries of my work. Um, and then um, I post a lot of my just work and thoughts on Instagram at Corey Hawk. All one word. Perfect. Pretty easy to find. Yep. (laughs) Love it. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate you hopping on. This was a blast. We'll have to do it again so we can just continue to go down these rabbit holes for more time today. (laughs) I had a great time talking to you, Ross. I appreciate you having me on. All right, man.